0: we really need to read the chapter. I don't know how familiar you all are with the story. I'm assuming some are very familiar, but I'm also assuming that for some of you, you have never heard uh, this. Quick preface of chapter one, very powerful king, King Exersus, um, throws a party, has got a really pretty trophy wife, Vashti. And he's got all the boys together. They're eating and drinking. They've had one too many. And he says to the queen, listen, I want you to come out. And I want you to, you know, walk around the room, basically, so as all my friends see how beautiful you are. And she says, get lost, basically. And you don't say get lost to a dictator. So what he did was he sacked her and he got rid of Queen Vashti. So, Queen number one is Queen Vashti. Exit stage right. She's out of the picture. Esther 2, later, when King X's fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, because he needed a new queen, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of susa let them be placed under the care of hegai the king's eunuch who is in charge of the woman and let beauty treatments be given to them then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the city or citadel of Susa a Jew of a tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Ja'i, the son of Shimai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Exus, She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from Harim to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there, and in the morning return to another part of Harim to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abahel, to go to the king she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ericsus in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen and said, And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality." This is the word of the Lord. Now, Bible stories are very often seen to stretch the very limits of incredulity. I mean, we all know them very well, the story of Jonah and the whale. And many folk indeed laugh at that image of this great fish swallowing up the prophet Jonah and after three days this gorging him on the shore and Jonah goes off to have a very successful ministry. And then, of course, there's the dividing of the Red Sea and Daniel and the lion's den and the the three men in the fiery furnace. All these stories, again, seem to be a little bit too much and too far and so far-fetched. So here we have in the story of Esther this despotic king, King Xerxes, and he needs a new wife. No, uh, no idea here of social uh, uh, networking. This wasn't the world of Tinder, is it? Do you- swipe right or swipe left. Trust me, I've never used it. But it seems a lot easier than this social media cyber age to get yourself a young lady. But we have King Exodus here has got this bizarre competition, and it really is beyond the realms of incredulity. It's funny, I googled, how do despotic rulers get wives? And I come up with two characters, Colonel Gaddafi of Libya and Berlusconi of Italy. Most of you are too young to have heard of these two gentlemen, but they were were really great pals. And apparently Gaddafi was coming on a visit to Italy, he was going to do a visit to Rome, and he gave a request to his friend Berlusconi that he got 500 of his leading female politicians But they all had to be under the age of 25 because he wanted to meet them. And of course, Gaddafi self-styled himself as the great emancipator of women. And Gaddafi went and he met the 500 ladies, and indeed, I don't know how the story ended. But you know, truth is stranger than fiction. That's how despotic men, and indeed despotic women, uh, do things, that every whim is satisfied. But the thing about Old Testament narrative is that we don't come here to learn just moral lessons. Uh, every, you've got to remember that when you read Old Testament narrative, there is one thing that's really important is that there is a hero. And the hero is, or the heroine is not Esther. The hero of the heroine is not Mordecai, but the hero is God. And what we will have here in the book of Esther is a very interesting power play, and indeed that's the theme of the book of Esther. It's all about power. It's about the power of this dictator, Exerce, and the power of God, and how they are contrasted and how they are compared. And indeed, we'll find in this is if, if you read the book of Esther, you know that Esther does something later on which will lead to the salvation, the redemption of the entire Jewish race. And it really is quite wonderful. Just a couple more things by way of introduction to the book of Esther. Two things, I think, stand out of some interest. Number one, it's only one of two books of the Bible named after a woman. Some say that the Bible is written from a male perspective, that the narrative is colored and filtered through the lens of maleness. That may or may not be true. I'll leave David Robertson to engage that particular argument. Or, or Facebook it, whatever. But certainly we see here that the book of Esther is interesting because it does see power from a female perspective. And in an age of Harvey Weinstein and slash tag me too, this is incredibly relevant because these things are not new. Powerful men have always abused women. And women have always been the playthings for the establishment figures who can do anything that they like. So it is interesting in that in this age of heightened awareness of abuse, the Esther story is incredibly relevant. But the second interesting thing about the book of Esther is that the name of God is not mentioned a single time. Yeah, we see the mention of the Jewish people. We have that in verse 5, don't we? Verse 5 and 6 there. When we have the lineage of Mordecai. And yet that's the very point. This is one of the lowest points in redemption, salvation history. These are the people who were the remnant of the remnant. Everyone else had gone back to Jerusalem. They had been restored after the Babylonian captivity. And Mordecai and Esther were one of a handful of Jews left behind in Babylon in a very pagan environment, an environment where their faith, the faith of Jehovah, did not thrive. There was no act of public worship that we know of. And yet we find there that although God is not mentioned, God is at work. And that is something that we've got to know here in secular Scotland or whatever nation you come from, that although God is not mentioned a lot in the public square, God is still at work. He is there, and He is not silent. And in fact, one of the interesting things in the book of Esther is like Esther chapter 1, verse 4, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom. The wealth and power of King Xerxes. the language is all about display, the language is all about show, the language is all about outward manifestation, and it goes nowhere, whereas God is not mentioned, and he is everywhere. I want to look at this passage, chapter 2, and really two ways or two points if you're taking notes. We're noticing the story, and I'm going to notice four things about the story, and we're just going to notice, secondly, the application. What does it mean? And we'll notice three things about that. First of all, the story. What do we notice in the story? Stories are fascinating things. I was walking down the Royal Mile, Mile in Edinburgh yesterday afternoon. And I looked at John Knox's house, and it had some interest to me. But it's also the headquarters of the Scottish Storytelling Centre. Storytelling is a big thing. Everybody loves a story. And the story of Esther, I mean, read it this afternoon if you have time. It wouldn't take you long, especially if you're not familiar with it. What do we see in the story here? Well, it's a story of anger, isn't it? Look at verse 1. Later, when King Erx's fury had subsided, he, he was furious. He was a man with a massive ego. And remember what I said, his, the Queen number one had snubbed him in front of all his friends. And so the red mist came down and he deposed her immediately. And we see the anger trapped him. The, the language of verse one implies that, doesn't it? He, he, I think he, he regretted, he remembered Queen Vashti, but this was, you know, have you heard of the laws of the Medes and the Persians? This was Persia. The law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed. He could not say, oh, I made a mistake, Vashti, please come back, all is forgiven. When he'd sobered up, when the red mist had settled, he had realized the fruit of his anger. Now, four years had passed by this time four years had passed, but yet the fruit of his anger is still there. It's a very practical point this morning, but are there anger issues with you? You all look very nice and very biddable and very tame. You all look relatively harmless. But I wonder, are there some of you who do suffer from seething anger and fury? And you have also made rash decisions. You have said things that are wrong. There was only one person who was perfectly angry, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we don't just take moral lessons from the book of Esther. Of course, I said, it's a bigger picture than that. But moving through, we see one or two elements of color here. There's the issue of anger. It's a story of anger. But it's also a story of superficiality. We know that this was four years since King Erxes cast his queen out. And we know what happened in the, in the intervening time. He uh, satisfied his appetite uh, uh, with various women, and he was ultimately assassinated, apparently, uh, in the bedroom of someone else's wife. You see, that's what happened. He, he was unhappy, he was discontent, and yet he seemed to try and sin himself out of his misery. Again, the wonderful thing is that I do not know you. I, do not, I know hardly anybody here, maybe ten folk. I don't know your stories. I don't know your week. weak. I, I don't know. I, I assume there's no Persian despot in the congregation, although, again, it's a very eclectic congregation. Yes, this is a big story, but you cannot sin yourself out of a bad place. Serial relationships which lead nowhere do not lead to lasting contentment. King Xerxes was the classic example of the restless heart. You see, we were built for a relationship with God. We were built for good relationships with one another. And, of course, King Ericsus, and he needs a new wife, and his civil servants come up with what was probably the most uh, pleasing idea, the most popular idea that his civil servants had ever come up with. Let's have a competition. I, I preached this, first of all, like, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I remember how I preached it. I preached it like Miss Persia, like a Miss World competition where you have all these glamorous ladies in their bikinis going in the catwalk and they are being judged. This was not Miss Persia. This was cruel, malign, pure, naked exploitation of women. It is reckoned that King Erxus slept with 1,400 women during this situation. They would all come and they would spend a night with the king, and if they pleased him, they were in. They were admitted to a harem. now. Let's not think Vogue magazine here. Let's not think some velvet bitch. Yes, it was a ditch. It may have been velvet, but it was far from pleasing. They would have to spend their entire life in the harem. That means that there was no outside contact. That meant that there was no possibility for any other relationship. That would mean that there was no opportunity to love. They would never have children unless they won the, the, the lottery and got pregnant from maybe one night in And and, uh, one one chance in the whole of her lifetime, you know, the birds and the bees, that's possible, but not very likely. It was a story of superficiality one night with the queen. And so, yes, it was a story of anger. It was a story of superficiality, but it was a story of abuse. Even for the woman that was taken, look at verse 8. It says there, the, the word was that Esther was also taken to the king's palace. She didn't fill in something online to win a competition for a night with the king. She was taken forcibly from her family, put into a harem of thousands. I think there's an application here. This was a world a worldview and a society formed intentionally apart from God's values and God's laws. This was a world where God's moral law was intentionally put aside. What do you get when you intentionally put God's moral law aside? You get Nazi Germany. Germany. You get North Korea. You get Hugh Hefner in the Playboy Mansion. You get Harvey Weinstein. And so many things like that. And we've got to ask ourselves that as we pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, are we part of just some kind of moralistic, moral majority who's trying to take our country back to an old Puritanism. No, by no means. This Persia of King Erxes, where there is cruelty, sexism, racism, abuse, all because God's law is sidetracked. But in the middle of this, you get one family. It's a dysfunctional family in many ways. Folk talk about a single-parent family. Well, don't dismiss a single-parent family. Here you have Mordecai who raises this girl, this beautiful girl, Esther, the uncle, because her parents have died. We don't know how. But Mordecai is a Jew, he's an older man, and somehow he raises this young girl up, brought up by her uncle. Again, I don't wish to push it too much, but isn't it interesting how folk raising children in the most difficult situations can, with the blessing of God, produce incredible children? A single-parent family. An old man and this young girl. It was very, very t- uh, uh, tough. There's an interesting word in verse 7 there. It says uh, this young woman had been taken. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father uh, and mother... It says Mordecai sorry, had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up. The the Hebrew word there is is one of those... Big words. It just doesn't mean brought up. You know, you bring a child up very differently to the way you bring a cow up. Trust me. <laughs> Here's how you bring a cow up. You make sure that the cow has got a lot of grass and depending on its gender, if it's milked, and it's disease-free. And you basically put it out in the morning and you take it in at night. In fact, you don't even need to do that. Don't do that with children. They're a little bit more complex. You don't need to affirm a cow. You don't need to go up to it, put your arm around it and say, I know you're having a tough time. You look really sad. Well, all cows look sad. That's just the way they look. They're not. They're re- Most of them are happy. You don't, you, you don't affirm them. You don't encourage them. The word here brought up means supported and believed in. As with his faith did, he nurtured Esther and he helped her grow in character and in poise. Okay, that's the story four points. We have a story of anger, a story of superficiality, a story of abuse, and a story of something else which you have forgotten. But the second thing we notice here is the application. How do we apply this story? I want to apply it in, in three ways. Number one, God's purposes are seen even in the most unlikely places. In fact, God's purposes arguably are seen, if we read the Bible, especially in the most unlikely place. I think it's legitimate that the title of the sermon was, what's a good girl like you doing in a place like this? So there you have uh, (coughs) the harem, and it's a horrible place. You know, there's weirdness all over it. Um, these eunuchs that looked after them. Again, I really will leave it to David Robertson to tell you what a eunuch is. But it was a kind of crazy situation. And what about this year-long perfume thing and cosmetics? Why does God allow it? She's just a pretty girl who finds herself in this situation. This is uh, hashtag MeToo on steroids. And you look in and you say, where is God's purposes in all this? No godly people anywhere. No, look at verse 5 again. There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Esther there, Jew does not just describe ethnicity, Jew describes covenant relationship. We were singing there in Psalm 85. So we're seeing here that this is not just an ordinary person, as it were, suspended in, in, in the midst of a, a moral vacuum. This is someone who is covenantally connected to God. This is a part of a nation whom God has got his eye on. So God's people are found there. And indeed, Romans 2, at the end of a chapter, you're going through Romans. We read there in Romans chapter 2 that he is not or she is not just a Jew who's a Jew outwardly, but one who is inwardly. We are the new Judaism, the people of God. This is a dark cattle market. God's people are found in the most unusual places. He is as at work today in a refugee camp in Syria and Afghanistan as he is in an upmarket evangelical church anywhere. God is not limited. We cannot draw boundaries around God and say you cannot be found there God's people are found in the most unusual circumstances. We see the ultimate unusual circumstance was the cross. The place of curse. The place of utter degradation. The place where normally no good ever went. The Bible says, cursed is every man who hangs in a tree. It's a place which was the very epitome of godlessness. Surrounded there by godless people in godless ways. And yet from the depths of that dark place, we have the redemption of mankind. God is not limited. What's the dark place in your life? What's the situation that you look into and say, God cannot do do that? What we see here is the wonderful providence of God. As Christians, we don't believe in luck. When I was growing up as a wee boy in Paisley, we had what were called lucky bags. I was brought up in the free church. I was the only wee boy in the scheme that called them providentially blessed bags. (laughs) So that's the story. There is no such thing as luck. We are providentially blessed. What does providence mean? Well, let me take you to that page-turner that you're all familiar with, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It, divide, it defines providence. God, it says, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence. That's what God does. He's at work, even in dark places. The harem of King Exus. The concentration camp of Adolf Hitler. The playboy mansion. Who's in there? It's your first application. God's purposes and God's people are found in the most unlikely place. Secondly, God's people live like God's people even when they don't have labels. God's people live like God's people even when they don't have labels. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. I don't know why that was the reason that Mordecai Fear her chances of becoming king? Did he fear anti Semitism? But yet, here we have Esther. Now, (laughs) the story of Esther is worthy of, of a whole series of sermons. I'm just touching on it. Was Esther backslidden? Was she acting out the life of a godly girl? Discuss in, in a sense over the next few weeks if you want. But certainly <coughs> Esther's behavior in that horrendous situation where she had very little control, very little agency, and yet her behavior in the harem was so godly. It's godly in what she said but godly in what she didn't say. Musicians amaze me. Your musicians are, are amazing. But what amazes me is not so much when they play, but apparently in these books that they use with all these funny squiggles, it tells them when to play, but it tells them when to pause. And the pause is as important as the playing. And you get the pause just right. I don't know why I clicked my fingers there. I just felt like doing it. So what we say and what we don't say. Now, we ought not to be quiet about our faith. Always. Romans says, confess the Lord with your mouth. And indeed, we've got to do that. You know the famous Saint Francis of Assisi. You know, preach the gospel. Use words if possible. Is nonsense. We have to use words, but sometimes we're quiet. Matthew Henry says, "All truths are not to be spoken at all times. All truths are not to be spoken at all times. What does that mean?" Well, if you meet someone and they've got, they're normally really, really fine, but they've got a huge, big, bulbous, pussy spot on the end of their nose. I hope nobody's going to be sick here. You wouldn't say, oh. excuse if there's to have a big spot on the end of her nose this morning, but you wouldn't say, look awful sometimes you just don't say anything there is a time to speak and a time to remain silent esther displayed that and the king was attracted to esther Now, there's a a phrase in verse 9, I'm almost finished, verse 9 there, this is, uh, she pleased him, uh, this is uh, the eunuch, the servant, she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. That phrase there, she pleased him and won his favor, literally means she lifted up grace before his face. There was a beauty about her. What's beauty today in whatever year we're in, 2000 I don't know what year we're in. I don't know where I am sometimes. What is a beautiful person? You know, you look at the magazines and you look at someone and you say, that person is a beautiful person. There's an interesting book by Joan Brumbig called The Body Project. It's a little bit old now. It's about 20 years old. But The Body Project looked at the idea of girls' female beauty and the perception of what female beauty is. And it analyzed diaries of girls 100 years ago and records of their mindset today so this is one diary a diary from 1892 dear diary resolved today to think before speaking to work seriously to be self-restrained in conversations and actions to be dignified interesting myself more in others So, you know, your your pre-Instagram, Snapchat, that's what a girl a hundred years ago resolved to do. That's what her perception of poise, beauty, decorum was. 1982, that's when the book was written, I will try harder to make myself better in every way I possibly can with the help of my budget and babysitting money. I will lose weight, get new lenses, already got a new haircut, I will get good makeup and accessories. I will not skimp on the quality of my perfume. (laughs) Girls, if there is one practical thing you take from this morning, let it not be, don't skimp on the price of your perfume. The point is, beauty Value, character, the Esther-like character. It's very. She's the same character as Jesus, who won favour and grace. The third point is very, very quickly. And this is that God's plan of salvation works from the beginning of time, even when it seems to have stalled. There's not a lot happening in the book of Esther. It's not one of the big movements of redemptive history. But yet we know that God is a savior. We know that God is still saving his people, that God is passionate about saving his people. Yes, Esther and Mordecai lived among the remnant who stayed in Babylon but the wonderful thing is that the Old Testament is full of characters who preview the ultimate char- the ultimate savior in esther Esther saved her people, ultimately what led to a famous feast, the Feast of Purim. Esther did things or did something very, very bold which led to stopping the annihilation of the entire Jewish people in Persia. So Esther was a savior. But as I look at Esther and Jesus, I see contrasts and I see similarities. And with this I close. Esther was pretty. Jesus was not. He had no form or comeliness, as the authorized version says, that we should desire him. Esther was anointed with perfume and cosmetics for lust. Jesus was anointed with perfumes for love. Love. Esther saved her people from a place of privilege, the king's palace at Susa. Jesus saved his people as a great outsider in the cross of Calvary. Esther was taken to the king. Jesus was the king. We see here, both of them lived lives which won favor. Both of them which engaged in lives which led to to banquets and, and honor. But we have in Jesus a greater Savior by far than Esther. I'm seeing the landing lights of the airstrip I'm coming in to land now and you will soon be in the terminal building. How do we conclude this? Well, certainly we look at the moral attributes of Esther and we try to live like her. Yes, that's, of course, in the passage. But we thank God for a greater Savior and a greater Esther. Will you and I follow this compelling master, the Lord God of heaven, for a life of adventure and a life of purpose. Remember, wherever you are, you're there because God has placed you there and he's not forgotten you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, for its power Thank you for that great passage about Esther. Be with every one of us as we meet with you. May we enjoy you. And even in the dark places, may we know that you are there and that you are not silent. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of Calvary and the God of Resurrection. Thank you for the power of the cross. Esther saved her people from the citadel and Jesus saved his people from the cross. Forgive our sins. Amen. Let's now conclude with our last song. power of the cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to the cross of wood.